Matthew chapter 5 and verses 17 to 20. Many people have said that verse 17 is the key verse for Matthew. Uh, the whole chapter of Matthew, the key verse in the whole book, uh, many people think is uh, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. And some of the reasons they think that is Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, the Old Testament. The New Testament begins, and right there in the key, this verse, Matthew is seeking to explain who Jesus is in relation to all that has gone before and all that lies ahead. So let's read this. Uh, let me read it to you as we follow along together. Matthew 5, 17 to 20. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear, not, uh, will by any means disappear from the law until everything has been accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray, shall we, this morning. We... Um, Miss the youth and the young adults, the young adults especially, about 50 of them that went down to Warrigal, past Warrigal for the state youth games and uh, they had a ball, they came back exhausted and uh, I think there's even a, a lost property place here for all the things that they've left, you know, like a state youth games lost property where they've left things as you come in. They had so much fun. Uh, a lot of them, they all did really well. I think they won the A grade... Volleyball, yeah, that's good. So that's great. Simon Pickering came, got to the semi-finals in squash, and uh, there were some great champions that came out last week. So we did miss the the young adults. Uh, I wonder this morning, as we look at this passage, it would be good for us to ask this question together. How should we, as followers of Jesus Christ, as his disciples, understand the Old Testament? How does it relate to us today? What impact should it have on our lives? Or now that Jesus has come, kind of what difference does that make? In the second century AD, um, where uh, Marcion was a wealthy ship owner and the son of a bishop, when he lived, he actually was a superb organiser. He was very organised and he had great skills just organising everything. And he built up 
uh, many communities all over the Roman Empire. His central thesis was that the Christian gospel, the word of God, is a gospel of love to the absolute exclusion of the law. He actually rejected the Old Testament in its entirety. In fact, uh, he took parts of the Old Testament and just ripped them up. Like he just pulled them out, the Bible. He cut them out. In fact, he rejected the whole of the, New Te- the Old Testament. And he said, Jesus came and he taught a law of love, the gospel of love. And he said, the Old Testament is re- irrelevant for today. It's not worth anything. In fact, that wasn't enough for him. He actually went through the New Testament as well and he started to find things in the New Testament that needed to be cut out completely as well. And he took out many of the writings. He actually loved Paul's writing, so he kept most of those books in. But he, he thought that some of the Gospels even, um, you know, they referred too much to the Old Testament, so he took those out as well. And in the end, he said, Luke is the only gospel that we can really take. And even that, he had to cut and paste pieces out in order to make it palatable for his idea that the gospel was the law of love, not about all the rules. In AD 144, he was excommunicated for immorality, which just kind of shows us what happens when you get rid of, of the law and replace it with a law of love completely. People still seem to do the same today too. This is not so far off and distant in our church's practice and thinking. I remember a couple of years ago, Bishop Spong came to Australia and he uh, had television audiences and discussions and many academical, academic debates with Christians. And he said, if you uh, look at the Old Testament, in there you see uh, the God of the Old Testament is out of date, he said. He said, you look at the Old Testament, you see a God who does barbaric acts, a God of destruction, and you can throw all that away. We've now moved on in our understanding." to a God that's all about love, a God of love. He said, forget the Old Testament. Uh, We've been reading through the Old Testament uh, together, doing soap and daily readings. And if you're following along, I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you feel like being like Marcion, you know, and just going, ripping out pages. I've got to admit, there's times when I come to verses and think, wow, is that in the Bible? I was looking at Leviticus. And I got to the part in Leviticus 24 and verses 10 to 23 and I started to feel a little bit uneasy about what was written there because there's the son of an Israelite woman and he's got a, uh, an Israelite woman for a mother and an Egyptian father and he gets into a fight and in the middle of the fight he blasphemes the name of the Lord with a curse. So people grabbed him and they brought him to Moses and they said, what should we do? He blasphemed against God. And Moses said, you know, I better go and seek the Lord on this one. And so he goes and he says to God, you know, he said, God, what should I do? And the response that God gives him is this. He says, take the blasphemer outside the camp. All those who heard him are to lay their hands on his head and the entire assembly 
is to stone him. You think, wow, I wouldn't mind just grabbing that one, you know, ripping it out. I think I'm sometimes tempted to, to do that and think perhaps it would have been better if that was different. So I suppose the question that we should ask is not what would I tear out or what would you tear out, but the question we need to ask today is how does Jesus view the Old Testament? What is his thinking when it comes to the Old Testament? And therefore, once we understand that, it helps us to know what our attitude should be. People were asking all this question in Matthew. You get the sense that you know, Matthew's talked about the genealogies in the first part and then he's talked about his birth narratives and all the things that he started to do and you get the sense that crowds are coming and following him and they're all starting to wonder what kind of guy is this? What authority has he got? He seems to be relaxing some of the rules and doing that. Is he, what does he think to the Old Testament? And people would have been asking, you know, what, what's going on? What's going on? Is he doing away with all this stuff? So what is Jesus' attitude to the Old Testament? And therefore, what should yours and mine be? I want you to notice that Jesus never actually read the New Testament. It wasn't around when Jesus was on earth. Although he obviously uh, wrote it through authors, uh, but he had never had the New Testament in his hands to refer to. To him, the scriptures were the Old Testament. In the first couple of verses here, Jesus actually stamps the whole of the Old Testament, the entirety of it, with authority. Look what he says. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. He says that, that we're to not overlook one bit. In the King James Version, uh, it, it says, not the smallest jot or tittle, meaning just the little parts, uh, like a comma that's above a letter or an inflection. It's meaning not the smallest jot or tittle means sort of just a little stroke in the Hebrew language that might not even change really the meaning of the word, but it's still there. And he's saying not even those things should change. Sometimes writers were translating the scriptures into different languages, doing translations, and just the slightest difference in the Hebrew word would be the, you know, like the difference between a capital P and a capital R, you know, that little bit there, you know. And, and it would change the meaning of a word, and Jesus says, that's not on. Not even one of those little words, little inflections, little jots, little tittles are to go away, not the least stroke of a pen of the law. The Old Testament is sometimes referred to as the law and the prophets. And you can see that in verse 17. That's how he refers to them. And at other times, he simply refers, it's simply referred to as the law, the Old Testament. And in verse 18, you can see that happening. And Jesus said, uh, and Jesus says that he was not abolishing the Old Testament. Rather, in every way, he was endorsing it. 
Jesus, in his life, quoted it. He read it. He believed it. He lived by it. This is what uh, a theologian, John Wenham, says when he tries to sum up Jesus' view of the Old Testament. He says, To Christ, the Old Testament was true, authoritative, inspired. To him, the God of the Old Testament was the living God and the teaching of the living God. To him, what the Scriptures said God said. So when Jesus says in the start of this passage that we've got before us today, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does he actually mean when he says, I've come to fulfill them? Kind of like an antithesis here. I've not come to abolish them. Rather, I've come to fulfill them. In what ways did Jesus fulfill them? What does he mean by that? The Old Testament has got 39 books in it and there's three main ways in history that people have looked at the Old Testament. Um, The first way is looking at it as salvation history. It's telling the story of how God has acted. It's telling his story, history, God's story, about the way in which God has interacted with human beings in the past. It's called salvation history. It's the story of when Adam and Eve were in the garden and came, uh, and God came to these human beings and he interacted with them. He created them. Not only does it tell that story, but it continues on to talk about uh, the creation to the fall and to the flood. And then it talks about Israel, the people of Israel. And it goes on from Abraham and Joseph and goes through the exodus to the wilderness and to the conquest and talking about the way in which God dealt with human beings. The Old Testament is going right through this. We read about the judges, the period of the judges and, and the monarchy where you know, kinship comes, comes into God's people and people, God's people are led by kings. It talks about the exile and the return from exile. How do we understand all of this and what relevance does that aspect, the fact that it's his story, it's salvation history, how does that, uh, how are we to understand that relevance to our lives today? How, how are we to now respond to all of that? That's one question when it talks about the Old Testament. One aspect that the Old Testament is, is salvation history. How does Jesus come to fulfil that? That's a good question to ask. Another way that the law and the Old Testament has been uh, looked at is that it fulfills, uh, that, it, that it talks about God's promises. The Old Testament interpreted and viewed uh, God's, the way in which God has made promises with his people over the past. And, and as we look at that, we can see that the Old Testament is full of hope and expectation. We read of promises that God made with uh, Noah, with Abraham, with Moses and with David. Then in the prophets, we see how God spoke to Israel as well. 
and how uh, right through he spoke through the, the, the prophets, Joshua, Judges, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings. They describe the early history of Israel and then the later prophets include Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel and 12 other uh, minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi. All these uh, contain promises that look ahead. So the second way of looking at the Old Testament is that it's the promises that God made to us and these show them to us, the Old Testament. And the third way of looking at the Old Testament is to look at it not as, uh, just as salvation history, not as just as God's promises, but as God's law to us. And here, uh, some scholars have said that the best way to look at the Old Testament in terms of law is to see that the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch and to see them as having three types of law. Moral law, civil law and ceremonial law. You're with me at the moment? Good, great. Uh, when you come to think of moral law, when, when you look at the Old Testament and its purposes of providing law for us, when you think of the uh, Old Testament moral law, the first of those three ways of looking at it, we see the, the, the Ten Commandments come into view and the things that God gave his people as ways to live. When you think of the civil law, you think of the laws, uh, the ways in which the community, the people of God were to act and the, and the kind of rules and laws that would govern them in that particular place, in that setting, in that time. And the third way was the ceremonial law, the, the way in which they were to live before God uh, ceremonially, the way their worship was to take place. And the way all of this was to be done. And there's lots of talk about purity and the way in which we have to make sacrifices and all those kind of things in the Old Testament. It talks about those. The Hebrew word for law, as it relates to the Old Testament, is Torah. And it literally means guidance, instruction. So... We look to the Old Testament for salvation history, as God's promises, as God's law. And Jesus came and he said that he hadn't come to abolish the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. So the question is, how did Jesus fulfill salvation history? How did he fulfill God's promises that the Old Testament contained? And how did he fulfill God's law? Um, just as you open up Matthew, you can see how in many ways Matthew tries to emphasise fulfilment in the Old Testament. In fact, Matthew clearly shows how Jesus uh, fulfilled these different three views that I've just described. Three ways of identifying the Old Testament. So how, how did he fulfil salvation history? How did that happen? You know the, the stories of how God has acted in the past. 
If you have your Bibles open at Matthew, um, you can look and you can see how Matthew begins and you'll notice that when it first begins, there's all these lists. It doesn't begin with the birth of Jesus, just saying that he was born, uh, but he begins of talking about the genealogy, genealogy, and, and of all things. He, he talks about uh, the way in which God has worked through the lives of all these people that are listed there at the start, coming right up to the time of Jesus. There are three periods, uh, and each of them have 14 different generations in, in them. 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to uh, exile and 14 from exile to Christ. And when Matthew, what Matthew is trying to point out here as he's, as he's sharing with his readers about who Jesus is, he's trying to point out that the Old Testament falls into these equal spans of time between crucial events and Jesus is the end of the line. Jesus is the fulfilment of what these have been looking for. So as far as the Old Testament goes, the climax has been reached, is what he's saying. And there he puts this verse here where Jesus is in the Sermon on the Mount saying, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill it. And what he's saying is, here is Jesus. It's the end of the Old Testament story. The climax is building right up to the time of Jesus. And in him, salvation reaches its fulfilment. This is the story from which uh, Christ uh, acquired his identity and mission, the Old Testament, the, the Old Testament salvation history. The story, uh, it's the story to which uh, his life it was given significance and authority. See, as we read the Old Testament, it makes a difference to know how it leads to Christ and how he gives meaning to it. All those stories lead and are interpreted and fulfilled when we see what they were leading towards in Jesus. How then are we to understand the Old Testament in the light of the fact that Jesus actually completes the story? We're just in, in three brief ways. I want to let you know. The reality of the Old Testament story is affirmed in Jesus. Old Testament, more than just a prediction about Jesus that he would come. It's the story of how God has acted in human history and out of which his promises arise and they make sense. The stories tell us about the true relationship between God and his people. And as we read the pages of the Old Testament, we see how he's been working with people and how he's been dealing with them and what God's character has been in that. For instance, when you look at the story of the Exodus, there you see that God has a real heart for the oppressed and the poor and the suffering. And so it tells of his action for justice on behalf of those that are being exploited. And it tells of a God, uh, of a God who redeems his people and sets them free. And as you look forward to Jesus, you see Jesus comes. God is sending himself, his son, to redeem his people and to set them free. And as Jesus comes and says, I've come to uh, fulfill that's what he, he's, he's fulfilling himself by fulfilling the character and way that God has acted in the past in himself. Secondly, Jesus sheds light on the story. You know, we understand the story in the, in the light of its destination, where it ends up. And, and the Old Testament can't be fully understood without Jesus. See, Jesus one said to the Pharisees who knew the Old Testament, you know, back to, fr uh, back to front, they knew it in detail, 
And he said to them, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus said, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That's John chapter 5, 39 to 40. And it's like when you go into a dark room and you're there and you, you kind of think, I think there's some furniture here. I think there might be something. I can't quite see. Then someone switches on the light and you can see where everything is and it's so clear. And when you look at the Old Testament, it's a bit like that. But when we see it in light of Jesus coming to fulfill salvation history, it's like the lights go on. Firstly, the reality of the Old Testament history is affirmed. Uh, 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 the Old Testament story is affirmed. Secondly, Jesus uh, sheds light back on the story. And, and thirdly, the Old Testament story helps us to gain a full understanding of, of Christ. Jesus uh, came, and just as it's possible to watch the last scene of a movie, Mandy and I walked into a movie, we're running, running late, and we missed the first couple of scenes. And all the time we're thinking, oh, what, what, did, what happened at the start? There's, there's some key facts that we missed. We didn't feel like we'd quite seen it. But you can read the, Old, the New Testament and you can understand some of it. But as you read the Old Testament, it helps bring clarity and clearness to all that Jesus came to do. In order to understand Jesus, we need to read the earliest acts of God in salvation history to make sense. So... That's how we're to understand the Old Testament in the light of the fact that Jesus actually fulfills the story. So that's how Jesus did fulfill that first one, salvation history. His death on the cross continues the story of Jesus, bringing, of God bringing people to himself in relationship. So what about how did Jesus fulfill God's promises? Remember the second thing that we we kind of said that the Old Testament talks about the promises of God. Well, the second way in which the Old Testament has been interpreted, the promises, um, it talks about the promises of God right through, about what God has promised. And when Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the Old Testament, he came to fulfill the, Old Testament, the, the promises of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Oops. When Jesus came, we see that uh, just in his life alone, he fulfilled incredibly the predictions of the, that the Old Testament had about his life. Just listen to these uh, promises that he fulfilled. His birth in Jerusalem was prophesied. His early life in Nazareth, his miracles of healing, his betrayal, his suffering his death between thieves, his burial, resurrection, ascension, the outpouring of the Spirit, all predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled by Jesus in the New Testament. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies, including 29 in a single day, spoken by different voices over a 500-year period. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, Jesus took the two disciples, he talked to the two disciples and he took them through the Old Testament. And the Bible says in Luke uh, 2, 24, 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. He told them how he had come to fulfill the promises of God. Now, he also fulfilled the promises of the Old Testament in terms of covenants, 
you know, the Old Testament is about the promises of God and the promises that he's made on his initiative, uh, which require, require a human response. This can be seen in the Old Testament covenants, you know, the ones that uh, God made with Noah and Abraham and Moses and the people of Israel and, and with David. And we see in the Old Testament this rich kind of number of promises coming together like streams moving into one flowing river which all come, uh, come together, going on irresistible promises which find their climax in the life, in the death and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He came to fulfil the promises of the Old Testament. Finally, how did Jesus fulfil God's law? We've looked at salvation history. We've looked at the fact that he fulfilled God's promises from the Old Testament. How did Jesus fulfil God's law? Remember we talked about three different interpretations of law earlier, moral, ceremonial and civil. And Jesus came, and if you have a look at uh, Matthew, we've looked at the genealogies first, and, uh, and here we've seen that Matthew shows that Jesus actually fulfilled salvation history. And if you look from chapter 2 on to chapter 4, it shows how Jesus actually fulfilled many of those promises where he would be born and, and it, uh, you know, a lot of the Old Testament prophecies are listed there in those chapters. So it's talking about God's promises. And then thirdly, now, we come to the Sermon on the Mount in uh, chapter 5 to 7, and we see here how Jesus fulfills the law. He fulfills God's law. He says, I've not come to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. And it's obvious right from the very beginning. He was attracting controversy already because of the way he was seen to be handling God's law. And the Pharisees and the scribes attacked him because they thought he was loose on the law. And the Pharisees and the scribes, what they'd done is they'd actually come up with 248 commands that they found in the Old Testament. And they came up with another 365 things that were prohibited in the Old Testament. They kind of made these laws as well on how they should interact and they had them written down. And there was a, a moral way in which they described the way in which the law should be written out. And what happened was in Jesus' time, the understanding of the law and the way it was expressed was a far cry from what the Old Testament laws had said. It was, it, it was you know, hard to even recognise what, what God's law had said. And he explained to, to the people when he said, you have heard it said, but I tell you. Then he gave the true meaning of what the law was. He did away with the scribes and the Pharisees' interpretations uh, of which they had adjusted and, and then made nice. You know, they kind of made them easier or sort of limited their scope, to, you know, so that it, it couldn't mean all those other things. And he came and he made it, them fulfilled the laws. So Jesus fulfilled the laws by giving it its full meaning and explaining what it was. Uh, he fulfilled it through showing that the whole law can be summed up by saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength and love your neighbour as yourself. 
You see, the Pharisees and the scribes have been uh, trying, seeking to try and figure out how they could live and obey God's law in such a way that they were righteous and they would be able to say, yes, good, I've done it, I'm right, that's it, thanks. And they tried to obey it completely to the letter of the law. And Jesus was saying, that's not the intention of the law. When God gave his law, it was in terms of the covenant at Mount Sinai and he said, I love you. You are my children. I I love you. And I've already chosen you and called you to be my children in order that you might know me and that you might live rightly. And here are some laws that will help you live in a way that is going to help you prosper and live rightly in relationship with me. They weren't supposed to be a burden to obey tirelessly without relationship. And, and they weren't supposed to be ones that were lived out in a way where people worried or whether they, they would still be a part of God's people. If, you know, they, it wasn't about that. No, you're my people, God says. So here are my laws to live. You're my people, so here are my laws. The Pharisees and the scribes were saying, I'm going to live these laws so that I can be part of God's family. I'm going to obey them and fulfil them so that these will make me righteous. Jesus is saying, you're missing the point. He says in this verse here, he continues in these verses, he says, anyone who breaks the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the, uh, the actual least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is actually uh, saying, take the real laws and he's taking them and teaching them to live them. And don't, if you, if you, if you take these laws, if you seek to understand them, the real laws and, not, and you decide not to live them and you don't live them yourself and you teach others not to live them, then you notice that you are in the kingdom of heaven still. You're just excluded. You're not excluded from the kingdom of heaven. But if you break the laws and if you don't do it and if you teach others to, you will be very low in the kingdom of heaven. So you're going to be low. You're not out of it. But you will be doing what Jesus, or you won't be doing what Jesus required, what he asked of us, what he asked of his followers to do. In the kingdom of heaven. He says, if you teach others to obey them and if you obey them yourselves, you'll be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it seems that there's a different levels in fulfilling God's law in the kingdom of heaven. But he says in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So here he's saying, that if you break some of them and cause others to do so, you will be low in the kingdom of heaven. But actually, if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees, you won't even get into the kingdom of heaven at all. People must have said, this is incredible. How are we going to do this? They're doing all the laws and they're doing all that. And he's saying, because you're missing the whole point of it, people who come to me and accept my love for them will want to live according to my law, not the other way round. You don't live according to my law and then receive my love. You don't earn it through doing that right. There there are two kinds of righteousness, Jesus is saying, I think, here. One is the one where we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and we say, God, we're completely unrighteous. 
Help us, forgive us, cleanse us. Uh, and, and may your r- righteousness fill us and justify us and make us right in your sight. And I think that Jesus says, I love you. You're forgiven. You're my child. I, I, I count you as righteous and justified because you come to me broken and asking for my forgiveness. But then when we've received that righteousness, what's our response to that love and to that wonder of being called part of his family? What what is our response? It's to live a righteous life. It's to live a life that is seeking to fulfil God's laws completely. We do it in every way possible to live for him. Not because we want to fulfil the letter of the law, the jot and the tittle of the law. No, because we love a loving God. We love him who has forgiven us. And we long to please him with all of our hearts. That's hard, isn't it? What the people who were standing there didn't realise was that the very one who was talking to them right there in the Sermon on the Mount was going to give his life for them. He was going to be put to death on a cross, taking upon himself all the punishment that they deserved for not living according to God's law. He was going to rise again and he was going to send his Holy Spirit that would say, hey, in, in your strength, your own strength, you can't live the righteousness of, of, of the scribes and the Pharisees. But when I come into your life, when I fill you with my Holy Spirit, when you put your faith in me, I will empower you. I will give you a heart like mine. I will put a new heart in you. I will give you a new ability to love me and to follow me in righteousness. And that is so far more than just trying to fill the laws to try and earn our way into heaven. So, what happens now with Leviticus? That verse that I thought I'd like to pull out of the Bible. I think God hates it when people blaspheme. And I think this falls into the part of the way in which, the, uh, in part of the moral law. And it's that we're not to blaspheme and we're not to take the law's name in vain at all. But today, we're not to put into practice his punishments because he's poured out his wrath on his own son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, it's mine to avenge. It's mine to avenge. One day, those that blaspheme and curse God will be judged. It's not for us to do the stoning that was appropriate in those days. And that's what God has done and calls them to do, called them to do then. But the moral principle behind it is that we are to live in a way that honours God and those who don't will face judgment. At church, seek to live a righteous life that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Not because you have to, but because Jesus has called you righteous through his death and resurrection on the cross. 
and through coming into your life. And now he calls you to respond in a life of righteousness where we want to devour his word, Old Testament and new, and we want to live it in the fullness of its meaning. God bless you, church, as we continue to be those that are salt and light and stand out because we love our God and want to live for him. Let's pray together. Oh God.